When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to this program, which has will have a few facets. It's, it is a program that we at Elliott Bay Book Company, which is located on Duwamish land in the city of Seattle, in the Pacific Northwest part of the United States, are delighted to be doing this program, but we're doing it in conjunction with Literary Hub's podcast, Fiction Nonfiction. And you will hear from one of the hosts of that podcast extensively here in a moment, Vivi Orsugi Ganeshananthan, who is a wonderful writer as well. I'll say a little bit more, but just say that LAB and the Fiction Nonfiction podcast are doing this together. So we're delighted to be doing this on the occasion of the publication of Nawaz Ahmed's um, extraordinary debut novel, Radiant Fugitives. Thank you so much, Rick. Hello, everyone. It's a huge pleasure to be here, and I'm so happy to see all of you. Thank you for logging on tonight. Uh, as you've just heard, this is a special live episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. My co-host, Whitney Terrell, is away tonight, so I'm flying solo, and I'm thrilled to be here with all of you to celebrate the release of Radiant Fugitives. And as you've just heard, we're hosted this evening by the fantastic Elliott Bay Books, one of the country's best independent bookstores. And our guest is my old friend, Nawaz Ahmed, the author of the simultaneously epic and urgent novel, Radiant Fugitives. And it looks like some of you who are joining us tonight are already speeding through it. So I was excited to talk about this book on the show. I think many of us mark the election of Barack Obama as a game changer for American culture, in part because these days we're living through the backlash to that event. And Nawaz's book returns us to Obama-era politics and sheds new light not only on that time, but also our messy present and the connections there. And it asks big questions about how we push for change, for whom, at what speed, and both our larger communities, our nations, the globe, and also our daily lives. And it delivers a stunning depiction of faith and sexuality that is as complex as it is wide in scope. Nawaz is a transplant from Tamil Nadu, India. Before turning to writing, he was a computer scientist researching search algorithms for Yahoo. I'm never going to get over this. Um, he holds an MFA from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, where he was the winner of several Hopwood Awards. And he's the recipient of residencies from McDowell, VCCA, Yaddo, and Jurassi, a former Kundiman and Lambda Literary Fellow. He now lives in Brooklyn, and Radiant Fugitives is his first novel. Nawaz, welcome to the show. Hi, Sugi. I'm so happy to be here. And thank you, Elliot Bay Books as well as fiction, nonfiction podcast for having me. This is such an exciting moment. I've worked on this book for 10 years. So, and as Sugi will tell you, because she was my fiction advisor back when I started my MFA. And so 
I am so thrilled to be at a point where I can actually share the book with the world. And yeah, I mean, it's been a thrill to get to read. I mean, of course, some of the earlier versions of this and then to see it arrive in this beautiful version has been just a joy. And the book is already receiving tremendous acclaim and attention. It's an absolute page turner on a plot level, but it's also full of big and complex ideas about politics and faith. In the novel, we meet two estranged Indian sisters, Seema and Tahera, and they immigrate separately to different parts of California. And Tahera is a more observant Muslim than their parents, and Seema is lapsed, queer, recently divorced, and pregnant. The story begins in 2010, and their mother falls ill, so the sisters are kind of um, against their will, a little bit reunited, trying to be in the same space to kind of usher their, their mother into a more peaceful stage of life. Um, I think that their mother has all sorts of dreams about how her daughters might reconcile. Everyone wants lots of things at the beginning of this. And so we begin at a moment of great tension. And astonishingly, the way that we enter this story is from the point of view of Seema's newborn baby, Ishrak, which is a really interesting choice. I, I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a little bit about finding your way to that voice. The voice of Ishrak allowed me to write the book. Then I started, had this idea for this novel. I woke up one morning with these three women. There was a scene with the three women and a line which I believed to be what would be the first line of the novel. And um, I, I thought that that line would be the voice of the book, but I could not get it written as it was because I did not at that time when I know whose voice it was. And um, I knew certain things I wanted about the narrator for my novel. I knew that I wanted this uh, narrator to accept these three characters for who they were. Because I, I know that I myself, as a writer, had some trouble with my own characters. It's like, I don't understand these characters and why. And so I wanted someone who would accept them. And I was running one day in Michigan trying to figure out who would be the ideal person to tell the story in a way that would allow us and allow me, the writer, to embrace them as well. And it just occurred to me out of the blue, actually, as I was running, that I could have Seema's son, the newborn baby, or she was pregnant at that time, to tell the story. And that took off the book. I started the new draft the next day. And the book just took off from there. I had to give myself a few little um, instructions on in how it is possible that the young baby could narrate this. And I told myself that in the moment of his birth, before he takes his first breath, he has this hope, this connection to everything, to his uh, future, to his past, to the present. And in that moment, he's able to see the three women and the events leading up to his birth for who they were. And I, and I thought that that gave me the permission to write the book in the way I wanted to write it. Over the years, I had to also come up with other ways of looking at the voice because I realized that since the newborn baby was narrating, he also had to have some change and in those moments of his narration. And so I had to find a way in which his voice would grow into the final aspects of the novel. 
he's amazing. It's a, it's an incredibly flexible narration has like a little bit of a time traveler quality as well. The scope and nuance that this voice brings to the story is amazing. And so I, as I mentioned, I, I had the privilege of reading earlier drafts of this when we were both at the university of Michigan, but I think one thing I don't recall from the earlier drafts is the political intensity of the story. I think you do a great job of showing how tensions and relationships shifted around political events of the time. And the story rewinds from 2010, where it begins to show us how these two sisters became estranged. And we see that Seema works as an organizer for the Obama campaign. And I, you know, I got to this moment and I was like, oh, all of these moments that I remember so vividly, I'm going to see them again. And lots of other folks around her have adjacent political commitments. I'm curious about how the book evolved and you decided to set the story in this era. When I wrote the very first draft, it did revolve heavily. I think the draft you read, it revolved heavily around the three women. But there was a huge mystery that I hadn't tackled in that draft. And that mystery was, who is Seema? We had all these other characters in that draft who saw Seema as being this very fascinating character. They were drawn to her. She had made these very unique decisions in her life. But I hadn't figured out how to capture what was so different about her. And in order to do that, I felt like I had to go back a little bit more into her past. Like, how did she get to be in the draft I wrote? I had made her be this consultant for the Kamala Harris campaign. And then I had to go back a little bit more into the past. And that novel was set in 2010. So I had to go a little bit more into the past to say, how did she end up there? And what is the trajectory of her journey that led her to all these various decisions she made? And I think in trying to explore that, I realized that her journey, in a sense, also mirrored a lot of what was happening in the country at that time. We were going through such a tumultuous change with the Obama elections. There was so much hope. And before that, we had also gone through these periods of quite downturns. We had the software bubble burst. We had the Iraq war. We had the financial downturn again in 2008. So we had all these changes that seemed to be part of the landscape in which she was also tackling. And I felt like that was a unique place to uh, figure out who we are, like what are our hopes and how do we actually contend with all these huge actions or events that come upon us? How do we like, I mean, right now in COVID, we've already seen how, how that big thing can affect our lives. But b when I was writing the novel, it felt like all these things must have affected my characters just as it had affected me. And so I wanted to explore that. And I decided to set it very, very specifically in that time and stick to some real, the real trajectory of the country. And I've heard a lot of writers talk about, you know, approaching subjects from a slant. And I think often that's, that can be a very rewarding approach. 
I think about the people in my life who are activists or who are involved directly in politics in some way that isn't actually just being a politician. I think seeing seeing characters like this rendered on the page was it felt very familiar to me. And several scenes are set right in the heart of political events that are now iconic. There's the musical montage that celebrities put together for the Obama campaign that you just you describe it on the page. And I was like, I didn't think that reading a description of this would be as fun as watching the video, <laughs> but but of course it is. And then there are scenes that are set right at, you know, major speeches, certain moments in elections, and to be with your characters in these moments and to see what they see brought a lot of really fresh vision, I think, to those moments. And I wonder if you would read one of those scenes for us so that our attendees can hear what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, I will read from this scene where um, Seema is in Philadelphia, uh, in Pennsylvania, and she's campaigning during the primaries before Obama gets the nomination. Yeah, I don't think I need to say any more, except that she is at this point uh, married to Bill, who are both have kind of made it their uh, goal to get Obama elected. Obama is to address the nation the next day in what is publicized as his first major speech on race to, to try to stem the slide in the polls resulting from his relationship with the Reverend Wright. The Pittsburgh office, Sima included, gathers that morning to watch the live broadcast. Speaking at a hastily arranged assembly at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, against a backdrop of American flags, Obama begins by reciting the opening words of the Constitution across the street from where it was drafted and signed. The room that starts out tense, anxious, this speech could decide the campaign's fate, is left teary-eyed, inspired. Reverend Wright is correct that the union is not perfect yet, but he's wrong that there has been no progress, that America cannot change. This campaign, the campaign of a son of a black man from Kenya and a white woman from Kansas, building a powerful coalition of African-Americans and white Americans is proof of that. One of the organizers in the room, the youngest, openly sobs. Obama cites her story as reason for further hope in the next generation. A young white woman who had battled childhood poverty when her father, mother got sick and lost health care, now organizing in black communities, seeking out allies in her fight against injustice. This is how the union grows stronger toward perfection. Obama is confident and authoritative, but prosaic and detached and determined to be even-handed. Yes, black people have been wronged in the past and continue to be wronged, but white people have their legitimate grievances too, and both sides must work together to heal the racial divide. Did you hear that? Bill texts Seema, even before Obama is done speaking. This is why he deserves to be president. Seema agrees that the speech is masterly. Obama has delivered as they hoped and prayed. Almost immediately, the media hails it as one of the most profound speeches on race since King's I Have a Dream. What she doesn't admit to Bill is that she feels somehow disappointed, even disquieted. For even as she accepts that it was perhaps the only strategy Obama could have adopted to blunt the right controversy, she can't help but wish that Obama had shown some emotion, some anger, while speaking up about the wrongs suffered by his people. What if the Obama who had given the speech today is the real Obama? Passionate perhaps, but not as angry as Bill maintains, 
and therefore unprepared to fight back as a partisan, as would be needed, perhaps even reluctant to appear as one. What if Obama were not the fiery crusader she had convinced herself of, but merely a cautious technocrat who prided himself on being perceived as objective, impartial, methodical? He had promised progress as a gradual evolution for the benefit of some future generation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In the workshop she conducts over the next few days, she finds herself curiously disengaged. She is listless too in her interactions with her colleagues and the companions. She continues to canvass and register voters, but no longer outside the city. She manages to score a seat on stage with Obama for the kickoff rally on his Pennsylvania tour to Bill's envy, but instead of excitement, this may be the closest she'll ever get to Obama. All she feels is a nameless dread, as if awaiting further disillusionment. Long lines snake outside the stately facade of the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial before the rally, despite the drizzle and great chill of that morning. The hall is packed, center and sides, mostly students from the two neighboring universities, mostly young, and white and earnest, but clueless, Seema thinks. She's seated with the audience on stage on tired risers arranged behind the lectern in the third row. In the row in front of her sits a trio of enthusiastic older black women eager for Obama to appear on stage. Above her, a banner in red, white and blue, change we can believe in. But what had she hoped for in coming today? This is no more than Obama's stump speech, the invocation of Dr. King, a laundry list of the nation's problems, inspiring stories of individuals achieving their goals despite all odds, a laundry list of proposed solutions and campaign promises ending with the appeal to hope. Obama has continued to tweak the speech, addressing issues of the day, interjecting humorous asides, sharpening well-received lines, but many passages remain unchanged. She can repeat these word for word as if she had memorized them for some elocution competition. Bill would have given anything to be here. She feels guilty for paying so little regard to Obama, mere feet away, while she is wrapped up in herself, only aware of the thunderous moments of applause, automatically joining in with the rest, standing up and sitting down in ritualized unison, like the times she prayed namaz in Chennai, usually during Eid, forced to by Halima auntie, they, they prayed together, the women folk at home, the two girls, she and Tahara, and the two women, Halima auntie and her mother, while the men were away at the mosque for the Eid namaz. She'd protest. Why isn't she allowed into the mosque? Why pray to a god that denies the world to her? Obama finishes his speech to prolonged applause. He turns to shake hands with the people behind him on the risers. From Seema's vantage point, he seems less commanding now than when his face fills the TV screen. His handshakes are perfunctory. He's tired, only flitting a smile to a black woman behind him in response to the woman's beaming face. But that doesn't stop the thicket of hands thrust outward him. 
hands thrust out as if seeking sanctification, a blessing. Simultaneously, recollection. At the airport in Chennai, preparing to board the flight to London that first time, they'd all come to see her off. Tahara sobbing uncontrollably, Halima auntie consoling her, her mother discreetly wiping her eyes with her pallu, even her father cloaking distress in an exuberance of speech and laughter. She's checked her luggage and stands with them one last time, clutching her passport tightly like a talisman. As she turns to pass through the immigration and finally onward to the long-awaited boarding gate, something unexpected comes over her. For this is the other part of Eid she'd used to chafe against, when all the waiting women folk, including her mother, in the custom of touching their elders' feet on special occasions, bend down to touch her father's feet and receive his blessings, a gesture of almost veneration, which Tahara waited for eagerly every time, throwing herself at Abba's feet as soon as he returned from the mosque and which Seema dreaded. But some obscure instinct prompts her to avail herself of that gesture now, to stoop before Abba in the airport, till her fingers and passport lightly brush his shoes. Bored in front of him, his looming figure casting a shadow over her, she holds her breath until he gives his blessing. Jiti Rahubedi. He raises her to standing, kissing her forehead, whispering, I know you'll make me proud. His voice cracks that one time, despite his effort to control himself, and sudden relief, grief, gratitude washes through her. Then, a recognition. She doesn't need to add to all the worshipful hands held out to Obama. Obama himself has little power to grant anything. He is here, after all, to seek the blessing of the white people in the crowd, a blessing that would be given only conditionally, like her father's, to be revoked any time they were displeased with him, as he himself knows well from the deference he gave them in his speech on race. Yes, Obama could win the nomination, and perhaps even the election, but what would that change? Obama claims home, hope, but there's always a reality that won't judge. Change you can believe in. What if you didn't, couldn't believe in change? Change as something that took you someplace new and lasting, not something that brought you back to where you'd already been. Three continents, three countries, six cities, multiple homes, myriad loves, the ceaseless struggle, but still the same inescapable tragedy of herself, still seeking approval, still seeking some way to make her father proud of her again. I'll stop there. Thank you. Nawaz, that passage is so good. Thank you so much for reading that. I love that scene so much, not only for beauty and subtlety of its characterization, but also, you know, it's it's political insights and the way that it talks about change, um, that painful paragraph about Obama. I have to admit that when I, I read this, I kind of stopped for a second, looked away, and I was like, Obama puts out those lists of what he's reading. Right now, mostly I'm imagining him reading this and wondering how he would feel. For me, it landed with such an accuracy. I, I felt like I was in a room with people I knew but whose politics I didn't necessarily share watching Obama. I, I'd like to think I'm as sharp as Seema, but honestly, I'm probably not. You don't just describe these speeches, which I remember vividly, but use them to characterize her and, and Bill and others around them and to make her gradual political disillusionment into this huge looming tension. So I felt like I was seeing this familiar event afresh and also just feeling so bad for her um, about the way that she's invested in this kind of 
this hope and how it's not coming together in the way that she wishes it would. I wonder if you could talk about researching and including real political events in the story, because there are so many, and seeing you name them in your way um, is one of, I think, the greatest pleasures of the book. There are definitely many. And when I started the book, I felt like I had to put in everything in it. And then, of course, I had to pick and choose, like, what exactly makes sense for Seema. So there were these iconic moments, as you said, that seemed to me were also moments that I had lived through myself, but in a very different way, because I was not in Seema's position. And But I had been at the Iraq war um, protests in San Francisco. And I had, I think, followed, seen Obama's initial speech when he gives in 2004 in the John Kerry nomination at the at the DNC. And that, that was such an electrifying speech. And I just could not get over that when I had seen that. And I think I put that, that's the scene in the book, I think, where Seema and Bill kind of come together because then they see him as the hope of the country. And uh, and I think, uh, and it's an amazing speech. I mean, Obama gives such amazing speeches throughout the campaign. And I felt in a way to me, what was interesting about all these moments was the rhetoric. Because I feel like there's definitely actions that we look to from our politicians and our leaders, but we also look for these words that we can use in our own lives. And I think I concentrated on those moments that became like iconic for the kinds of uh, uh, language that they gave us. Like the song that you mentioned, the Yes We Can song, that was such a thing. And that, I mean, just watching it gives so much joy because it that there's that energy about Yes We Can. And that song captured it so vividly. And I think that was the kind of language that I wanted to include into into the book and have my characters also respond to that kind of hope that the language gives. I mean, Obama's speeches, as we can, and change we can believe in, they're all things that we can hang our own hopes on because we can interpret them in so many different ways. And Seema... I think in that change we can believe in goes from seeing it at the beginning of that and at the end of that passage, she sees change we can believe in in a different light. She's like, I don't know if we can believe in that kind of change when she sees herself in that moment as being both as a supplicant in some way, in the same way that she looked to her father for her approval. And here she is, in a sense, looking to Obama to provide, to be a savior of some kind and feels herself to be having come back to that same point and whether she can really achieve that or not. And so I think that particular scene that I read resonated with me for her disillusionment as to how much can we actually expect others to do the work. We have to somehow find the work ourselves and do the work ourselves. And maybe perhaps all we can get from others is maybe directions. And so, um, yeah, that was to me the pleasure of writing that scene to discover those connections. And that was also the pleasure of writing those political sections. It's hard to write about politics. 
and <laughs> very is like <laughs> how do you make politics interesting how do you bring it back to our lives so that and so i put seema in all those iconic moments because i like how else am i supposed to make these moments be vivid to the reader you can't just say i saw it on tv and so we have seema standing behind obama and seeing him there and wondering is obama like my father or is my father like obama yeah to the connections between how she sees politics and how she sees her family are so organic and natural and the arguments in which we quote politicians to each other those are the fabric of the conversations i have i can see that some folks are starting to of course have their own questions and i will just let you know that maybe in about 10 minutes i'll go to audience q and a and i will sneak in just a couple more as i wait for those so as you mentioned that you wanted to include everything and that you ended up leaving some stuff out was there a darling you killed tell me about something that you you had to cut and how it how it ended up there instead of in the book i mean there was a lot more about like the original like the dean campaign to me the dean campaign was also a very interesting moment because this was the first time the internet was coming to the fore you had this a uh, moment when people were joining together on meetup and i think i would put the dean campaign as the first campaign that was able to harness the power of the internet and uh, i felt like and there was so much promise in that too i mean now the internet is being harnessed in pretty terrible ways but in 2004 it felt like this is why we are building the internet this kind of connection this kind of power that we can take back and so there were i think much more about the dean campaign in my initial drafts and then it felt like that was taking up too much air and i had to move the story forward and have the characters develop and so i had to trim that i mean it's still there it the dean campaign is still there in a much more concise form but the things that i was also very excited about is how do people come together and try to make change like how did the internet help that all that i think probably was reduced to a lie it was funny because when i got to that part i had a friend who worked for howard dean and was one of the key figures in his campaign and his use of the internet who actually has been a guest on the show garrett graf who is a reporter and a historian and another friend of mine who um was part of the dean campaign and at the time i was living in iowa And you know, I think Howard Dean was one of the candidates I met. I was I was at the Iowa Writers Workshop as a student then, and I was also doing political freelancing. And so much of what you described felt like things I had really sort of seen on the ground. And there is there is that I- iconic Howard Dean moment, the scream, right? <laughs> yes. Which is this the moment that the Dean campaign, I guess, arguably jumped the shark. They couldn't couldn't quite recover from that scream, and that scream is in here. Yeah, that's a great example of one of those moments that I saw on television, and now I feel like I also saw it through Seema's eyes. And I think one of the things that also permeates the book throughout and we heard it a little bit in the passage as well is faith. And I felt that in reading your book I realized how rarely I had heard a Muslim American perspective on the Islamophobia that is at the like at the heart of the birther movement. You know, what is it like to be a person who um sort of hears the name Barack Hussein Obama said with such vitriol and I'm wondering what those events were like for you personally. and also how that relates to how you chose to portray Seema's anger. Mm. 
And not only Sima's anger, I think. I mean, that anger is diffused among... Ismail also feels that. Ismail is uh, Tahara's husband, also feels feels that. Because there is hope. And if you think of Obama as being a Muslim president, then there is hope for Muslims in a way. But of course he's not. And Ismail decides that, no, Obama is not Muslim, despite all the rumors that are spread about it. But I think... Thinking back about the Bertha movement and how it latched on to Obama as a Muslim to paint him as an outsider and as a result not being... There's also the fact that, I mean, the original Bertha movement is to say he's not born in the country, he's not a citizen, and therefore he's not not to be the president. But to also use Islam itself, he's a Muslim... And he could actually be a radical Muslim who may have gone to madrasa in Indonesia and therefore he's not allowed to be a president as well, is another argument which it felt like, why drag us Muslims into it, at least as far as, the, as, far as that argument is made? Because we were already in 2007 and eight coming out of what I'd hoped then, I think, was leaving back 9-11 behind. Every time I return to the United States, I've been pulled out of line. I've had to, uh, at the um, immigration thing, pulled out of line, had my baggage checked, taken to some room and did they did whatever checks they needed to do. So it seemed like there was some additional stuff just being thrown on Muslims just because they wanted to pull Barack Obama down. And that, I think, um, made it feel almost like adding insult to injury, in a sense. And I put that in Seema's thing. Seema, as you know, is not particularly practicing Muslim, but she still sees herself in that community. And to have events, this be pointed to her, I think does affect Seema quite a bit. On top of that, she's also this PR person. So she sees how this is happening. What is the way the engine is working in order to pull Obama down? And I think that from her point of view, she feels very conflicted by the fact of how the rhetoric is being used against Obama. And she feels like she can do something about it because she has the background, a communications background. Yeah, she seems to really understand the gap between um, what is said and what is meant in ways that I found to be, again, named with an accuracy that was nearly painful. And I think, you know, Seema's queerness also operates as a fulcrum for major tensions in the story. Her her best friend and most loyal ally, um, Fiaz, is a gay man. And, and early in the story, her mother thinks they're together. Seema's estrangement from Tahera is fueled by sisterly envy, but Tahera writes Seema a letter at one point in which she says Seema's lifestyle will condemn her. And she says, this is not according to our faith. And in the passage we heard again, Seema discusses politics with Bill and Bill is an African-American man whose political views are maybe kind of more centrist than hers and also informed by his fear that she'll leave. Um, You know, her, her previous partners have been women and he's uncertain of their relationship. And and when she criticizes Obama's stance on same-sex marriage in Prop 8, it has real consequences for their relationship. I'm wondering if you could talk about, you know, this novel as these complex portrayals of 
Islamophobia, you also portray homophobia in really complex ways. Yeah, we always think of uh, homophobia as in certain ways. I mean, there's a scene that I put in the book about the protests going on at the parade where you have these signs the protesters against the gay pride parade have. And I won't go into talking about what those signs are, but uh, that's how we see homophobia as as being this very violent thing. But there's also these other insidious ways in which it comes up and in small ways too. And it comes up also when we have our, bring our own baggages to the matter. Like Bill does get thrown out when he realizes Seema is uh, volunteering for the no unpropaid because he is triggered by the fact that Seema may leave him. And so there is that kind of personal baggage we also bring to the issue. And uh, Tahara has her own envious relationship with her sister, which I think informs a little bit about how she sees Seema's more freeing sexual exploits in a way. So there is, I would say, even a bit of envy in that. So there are these various ways in which people react in the book to Seema's sexuality. And I wouldn't label all of them homophobia, but I would say that there are various ways in which our personal baggages and our personal issues trigger certain reactions to it. And I wanted to try to capture the full kind of spectrum of that. I also really appreciated sort of the joy of the depictions of San Francisco's LGBTQ scenes, the, you know, gay pride parades, um, that community, and then also Seema's uncertainty within, within that community when she marries Bill, and she kind of wonders how she stands, which maybe is another example of what you're talking about, and it's obviously not exactly homophobia, but there's some sort of complex um, moving in and out of the borders of a community, and I felt like that was something that I hadn't seen depicted as as much and it's done really beautifully there. So I see we're starting to pile up some questions. So although I have more for you, I will relinquish the floor to our enthusiastic um, attendees. So I think, let's see if I can call on one of you, the person who had their hand raised, whose name, please feel free to go ahead and ask your question. I will read Elizabeth's question. Were you at all influenced by George Lakoff's analysis of the Democratic Party's need to use the good father as a metaphor? Fascinating connection between the character sense of her father and Obama. Ooh, that's a wonderful connection. No, I have not heard of, I hadn't heard of that particular analysis of, uh, yeah, of the father and Obama, though that completely kind of makes sense now to me. I mean, we do look to our leaders to be these fatherly figures. In a sense, Biden is a very grandfatherly figure, which is probably why he managed to break through. But no, I was not influenced, mainly because I hadn't heard about it at that time when I was writing. So do you, I mean, do you read political analysis and commentary and who do you, who do you read? For this book, I, I did read a lot of analysis. I kept most of my analysis for those periods, like 2008 to 2010, because I felt like if I had to read anything beyond that, that I would be letting like hindsight color uh, my picture of what was happening. So I tried to not read too much about the Obama years after 2010, because 
at least as far as the book was concerned. Because I did find myself putting in all these things that I was reading in and I was like, no, I don't want to look at this period from hindsight. So that Seema's thing is really, I felt like Seema in 2010, not someone who looks back because that's how I, I felt Seema would behave at that point, that she would see Obama's, Obama's hedging in a way. And I did read about some of the analysis around that time, but not later. I see. Yeah, because I feel like now I read so much analysis like that. And I really wish I'd had a SEMA around to kind of, I don't know, shove me to the left as a younger person. I mean, not that I was, I don't think, I don't know, trying to think about how I would characterize my own political past was interesting as, as a reader as I was doing this. It was also unavoidable. I was like, where was my position in relation to SEMA? SEMA's more radical than me. SEMA's more radical than I was. Um, now I aspire to be SEMA. I felt like she very believably saw a lot of stuff that on a first pass, I, I don't know. I felt like I, there was, yes, we can. And there's like, yes, we could have. And I felt like I was kind of, yeah, feeling a lot of, yes, we could have as I was, as I was reading. We have a question in the Q&A portion here from Brian Judd. How did your personal coming out story influence the development of this story? Ooh, I think the biggest uh, way it influenced is the necessity that I felt to write this book. Until then, there have been so many incredible activists. When I came to San Francisco in 2000, that was the first time I actually met a South Asian community of uh, a queer community in Tricon. And that's the first time that I met all these incredible activists who had started it and who had continued to do work and I felt, I think, like writing the book would be my contribution in a way, because I felt that the work had to be continued. In 2008 and 2010, it still didn't feel like, not that I felt like marriage equality is the end of it. I, I, I think it's the beginning of the fight and not the end, though there is fear that it could become the end. And so in 2008, when, they were, when Prop 8 passed and I did take part, in volunteering against it, um, I felt like I had to put myself into the fight. As a computer scientist, that was a hard thing to do. But as a writer, that was hopefully something I could do better. And uh, my initial conception of the book did not, I think, have any queer characters in the first original scene I wrote. But I decided in 2003 10 during the MFA that I could not write this book unless it had a major queer character and someone who are, who would be part of the struggle. So was that a part of your career shift? Coming out, you mean? I guess. Coming out as a gay writer, yes, was a part of my career shift. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I definitely felt that I just didn't... There is this kind of hesitancy of taking taking on a label like a gay writer but I did feel like we do need our gay writers and so yes definitely I felt like that coming out as a gay writer was a part of the career shift. Yeah I guess I was wondering about what you said about you know it's hard to take action or maybe it's harder or the choices are more subtle to take action as a computer scientist but to express your political thoughts as a writer obviously would be more natural and so perhaps moving to writing more seriously as someone who wanted to portray 
people, for example, using these different registers of rhetoric, um, moving in and out of politics, dealing with these long and sometimes subtle repercussions of politics on their lives. Yeah. I think that it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm always kind of blown away, but you know, I, I mean, you were in the first class that I taught and I had known you slightly before we both went to Michigan. We sort of moved from New York to Michigan at the same time and had met slightly before. I was always sort of in the back. I was like, no, was it has a PhD, like has this whole other, has this whole other life and expertise. And that you moved so deftly between those worlds is amazing to me. And I think thinking about how I feel like the writer, the writerly world is sometimes slightly insular. I mean, I guess most professional worlds are. And, um, but I am always fascinated when I talk to friends of mine who have come from these other careers and bring that the heft of that to what they do. So you wrote about San Francisco. You also wrote, there are many scenes set in Chennai, and there are two sets of references to other texts. We talked about sort of popular political texts, but you also quote Keats extensively. And of course, the Quran. And I'm not Muslim, and I appreciated how you gave me access to the perspectives of the faithful or the lapsed, particularly Sima and Tahara and their family, without, of course, explaining the terminology and practices that would be well known to members of the community. And, and so that work was mine to do. And I wonder how your own relationship and familiarity with Islam influenced your choices in doing that. Growing up, a teacher would come up in the mornings at seven o'clock and teach us Arabic which is not a language we used at home. It was, we spoke Urdu at home and teach us how to read the Quran and uh, memorize some of the surahs. We usually memorized the smaller surahs because at the end of the Quran, and these were like one verse or something like that, the other surahs could have like a hundred verses. And it's hard to forget those. I, I can still recite some of them. I won't do it here, but I still can. And uh, and because they're, they're steeped in melody, they're steeped in rhyme. And that's, I mean, any recitative language does that. And the Quran is basically an oral recitation. And so it's very hard to forget. And Keats was also something we learned how to recite. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. I mean, we learned that in the fourth or fifth grade and we had to recite that whole thing. And uh, that because we were part of this, um, I went to an Anglo-Indian, what they call a convent school, which was very steeped in teaching the British romantic poets. So those kind of influences are what are the influences that I saw on Seema and Tahara and especially Tahara, who has gone to faith at the later time. Like she comes to Islam, not from her childhood, but much later as an adult, she decides to take on a more rigorous uh, approach to Islam than she did as a child. And so it seemed to me very interesting and almost necessary to contrast the two things. Like how do you go from Keats to learning how to recite the Keats to to learning to recite the Quran and how do you try to make sense of the two? And for a long time, Tahara doesn't do that. She does that only at the moment in the book where she has forced to by her sister and her mother, where she's taken back in the past in a sense by seeing her mother and her sister together. So I think the book tries to explore that and uh, having been brought up in both of those, it just felt so natural to me. 
like these would coexist in a novel. And it was exciting, exciting to think of a novel that could contain both the Quran and the Keats. And that was as well as Obama's speeches. There's like, these are the things we hold on to. I mean, I don't know exactly what it means to say a thing of beauty is a joy forever, but I can find a hundred different meanings and I, I use it at different times in my life. And, and so these big, these texts became these things that I saw my characters hanging hopes on. And I think the whole book, in a sense, I hope becomes something like that for somebody else, where they can hang things off it. Very much so. Nawaz, thank you so, so much. It has been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. And thanks so much to the audience for these terrific questions. I feel like I could talk to you about the book forever, um, but I'll look forward to continuing the conversation with you offline and reading whatever you are working on next. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sugi, for this wonderful conversation and for the Fiction Nonfiction podcast. This is so exciting to talk to someone who saw the first draft. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub. The show is produced by Anne Knigendorf. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the texts Nawaz and I just mentioned. You can also find video versions of our episodes on LitHub's virtual book channel and on our own YouTube channel. Our new website with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators is at fnfpodcast.net. Until next time, happy reading and writing from Fiction Nonfiction. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Radiant Fugitives, Nawaz Ahmed's debut novel via Elliott Bay Books, which is offering free shipping on this title.